If you've not done so already, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. That's on page 821 in these black Bibles around you. If you're not accustomed to reading and using a Bible, when we say Matthew 16, that's the larger chapter number, and then there's verse numbers or small little numbers, and those just help with references. They're not actually originally there when God communicated His Word through those that recorded it down. They were added later, so you and I could just find them more easily. And so we're in Matthew 16, page 821, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. We keep working through this book of the Bible. It's called Matthew because it is the gospel of Jesus according to a man named Matthew. This is a first century biography. It was written just shortly after the time and life of Jesus here on this earth. It's early in terms of its dating. This is not hundreds of years after where somebody made up some stories about Jesus. The accounts before us are eyewitness accounts. Therefore, what we're hearing are stories and testimonies of people that saw Jesus. He really did live on this earth. In fact, I don't think there's any historian, even if they don't believe in Christianity or Jesus or the resurrection, that doubts that Jesus really lived. So we're going to learn each week as a church, as we go through this gospel according to Matthew, who he was. My guess is all of us have some sort of bad ideas about Jesus, and it's helpful to just go to the source when we've got some bad or fuzzy ideas about a topic. And so this is the source. This is one of four biographical sketches that we believe are inspired by God, They have historical elements, but they're mainly theological biographies, which is a kind of different genre, and therefore you need to read them differently with different expectations. And so that's what we're doing, and we're working our way through it, and we're in chapter 16. There's 28 chapters in Matthew, and so we've got a ways still to go. Hopefully it's been encouraging and rich for those of you that have been coming. It's hard sometimes to dive right into something, so I'd like to um, give you just up front, before we read it, the big ideas. Some of you are here for the first time. Some of you have been coming and been at every single Matthew sermon, and we're up to 59, I think the bulletin says. And so we're in various places around the room. So here's the big ideas. There's two of them because there's two different stories going on in this section. Big idea number one, behold the sign of Jonah. The first little section we're going to read is going to show you that The sign of Jonah is the sign that you need to be paying attention to. What is it? The death and resurrection of Jesus. So that's going to be the first big idea. Behold the sign of Jonah, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Second big idea. Beware of bad teaching. And you're going to see this phrase, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In just a moment, I'll explain what these things mean, but the big idea before we read them is that bad teaching, kind of like leaven in dough, can subtly creep in. So you need to beware of it. Pay attention to whether or not you have had bad teaching subtly creep in. So let's read the passage, and let's work through these ideas. Starting in verse 1, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him, 
to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had gotten forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So we're going to take these two big ideas and we're going to flip them around. We're going to start with beware of the bad teaching, and then we're going to move to behold the sign of Jonah. The bad teaching, as you see right there in verse 12, Matthew, the author of this biographical sketch of Jesus, gives us a little comment Terry here and tells us that, oh, they finally got it, and the disciples understood that what Jesus was referring to in this little discussion about bread and leaven is teaching. See that last phrase? The teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Or to put it simply, you are to beware. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to pay attention to make sure that you do not let bad teaching subtly creep in. That's the whole point, I think, of the illustration of not just saying, beware of bad teaching. That's the simple, obvious way, and that's how I'm stating it to you now. But there's more to it, isn't there? If he says, beware of leaven, it says that there can be something small and imperceptive that can go into a larger resource, like dough, and it'll start spreading, and it'll have effects. It will produce results. It makes a difference. So that's what Jesus is talking about here, the Pharisees and Sadducees teaching, which begs a question, who are the Pharisees and Sadducees? They are not normally grouped together, Pharisees and Sadducees. These are two different groups of Jewish communities. So if you think of the broader term Jewish, compare that with the broader term Christian. Since this is a Christian gathering, I'm assuming many of you are more familiar with Christians. Even in Judaism, there's different like sects or groups, S-E-C-T-S, sects. There are different groups of Jewish peoples. So there's like Orthodox Jews, and then there are 
Reformed, modern Jews, and there's different strands. Similar to Christianity. Maybe you've heard of like the Roman Catholic Church, or then Protestant churches, or different denominations. There's Baptists. So get that category in your mind, that there's different groups of religious people. That's Pharisees and Sadducees. Both of these groups did not start during the time of the Old Testament. If you read the Bible, there's two big halves. There's the Old Testament. It's the much longer. It's two-thirds of the Bible's length. And then there's the second half, the New Testament. And in between there, there was 400 years. And during those 400 years, these groups started to form because God's word was silent. There was no prophets. There was no kings. There was a lot of disorganization in terms of Judaism. And so these different people kind of appointed themselves and started their own different kind of factions or groups within the Jewish communities. So the Pharisees would have been known as more of your kind of hyper-conservative, really committed group, and the Sadducees would be more like, eh, eh, you know, and not so committed to different things. A little more loosey-goosey on terms of their theological positions, their ethics, their character, the way that they live their lives. So have you guys ever met somebody that's just like really religious and they're really into their stuff? That's closer caricature of Pharisee. Have you ever met somebody that's like, yeah, I'm kind of religious, don't really care that much, but yeah, I'm labeled as a Jew or a Christian or something? That's kind of like the Sadducees. Or in other words, if I were to just put this real like modern day language to help you get the idea, you've got two people coming together in verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they are together cooperating, working on the same team, even though they have diametrically opposed theological positions and ideas. This is like saying, and over at the Capitol building this week, the Republicans and Democrats all agreed on a whole bunch of things. And you're like, wow, like, that, that's, that's how you should read this story. Pharisees and Sadducees and, like, they're together? Yes. They're in unity because Jesus brings unity in two ways. He brings all kinds of different people unified together around the gospel and creates the church mixed of different ages, stages, nationalities, ethnicities. The church is supposed to be the place where unity within diversity is pictured to the rest of the world that's so divided and so messed up in terms of racism and divisions, etc. The church should be different. Should be unified by the gospel message of Jesus that makes all of us equal before the throne of Jesus. But Jesus unites in another way we see in this story. He unites enemies together because if you're not with Jesus, then you are against Jesus. And if you're against Jesus, you just want him to be stopped. And so you might form alliances with people that you wouldn't normally for the fact of getting rid of Jesus. And so this is what we see in this story, who these Pharisees and Sadducees are. To give you like a little sampling, Pharisees would have believed, for example, in that one day there would be a day that God comes and makes everything better. We might summarize that word with the word resurrection. They had a hope that there is a God who is the creator of all things, and he allowed the world through giving choices to human beings, and in his sovereign plan that the world got messed up, but one day he's going to make it right. Pharisees believed that. Sadducees didn't really believe that very much. They did not believe in a resurrection from the dead, and so they would compromise and partner with and just like, let's just make the best of what we got now. Let's kind of live for today. 
not for the future, for what God might do at some long lost kind of future-oriented thing. Hey, all I got right before me right now is what I can see. And that's why they were very sad, you can see. Sadducees. They did not believe in a resurrection. You guys like that? I didn't make up that, and I wanted not to say it today, but it just came out. My apologies for the pun. So hopefully that helps you give just a little sampling understanding of like the differences between Pharisees and Sadducees. And therefore, I think that's going to help us better understand what Jesus is saying when he's saying, beware of the teaching of these different groups. Notice that as the disciples are talking to one another after they hear this, look at verse 6, Jesus says, watch out, beware. He doesn't say, shut your ears to them. He says, no, pay attention. I want to make sure you're discerning. This is not close your ears and say, ah, no, no, la, la, la. I don't want to hear anything from these people. It's make sure you understand the difference between what I'm teaching you and what they're saying. And so in verse 7, they start talking among themselves and say, oh, no, we didn't bring any bread. In other words, if you read this, it's quite comical. Sometimes it's missed here as you're reading old, you know, books like this one. But there's a bit of irony and humor in this story. These guys aren't getting it. They are so clueless, obtuse. It's going way over their head. They're like, wait, Jesus is talking about bread, and we forgot to bring the bread. And then Jesus is just like, oh my, you are little children. The little phrase there that you have translated, oh, you little ones, is little ones of faith. You know, they're, they're just these little childlike, they're just childlike in their understanding. They're not getting it. And that's why he says, why are you discussing yourselves the fact that you have no bread? And at this point, it's like we've taken a little bit of a detour to Jesus' point. His point is, beware of the teaching of these groups. And then because they're so clueless, he's like, and really? You're talking about bread right now? Like, did you forget that like just a couple days ago, I took 4,000 people and fed them with seven loaves of bread? Now, Mark's story says that they had one loaf of bread uh, in the boat with Jesus at this point. And so we know that they have at least one loaf. And Jesus is like, come on, guys. You're worried about whether or not we're going to have some food to eat? We knew that after the story of the feeding of the 4,000, there was seven different large baskets full of bread. And so apparently they forgot to bring it with them. But Jesus is like, guys. I think I can take care of the bread problem. Like, let's get back on track. Here's the main point. I'm talking about teaching, not eating. Spiritual food, not literal food. We're going to be okay. I fed 4,000 people with seven loaves. I fed 5,000 people with five loaves. And so he's asking them to remember. And as we're in this little parentheses, this sidetrack because of the disciples' obtuse inability to get it. It's not until verse 12 where you finally see them say, oh, he's talking about teaching. And then the very next story, if you come back to our church next week or just read ahead, you'll see that for the first time, the disciples seem to like get it. They get who Jesus is. So I just want you to think about this for a minute. If you've been following along in the Gospel of Matthew, who has really understood or got it or it's really synced in? 
The people that Jesus handpicked to be his crew, the people that have been spending the most time with Jesus, that have been up close and personal with him every single day, no. I mean, they eventually do get it. But it takes a while. Sometimes it takes a while to get Jesus, even if you've been around it every day. Sometimes some of you are like, I'm not getting it. I've gone to church a bunch of times. Sometimes it takes a while. But here's the cool thing about the way Matthew has organized his gospel. It doesn't always take a while. There have been people that have got it. The strange thing is, they're the least likely people that you'd expect. In fact, the first person to understand one of Jesus' riddle-like teachings from a chapter ago was the Canaanite woman. Jesus starts speaking in parables and nobody's understanding what in the world he's talking about. Over and over again, the disciples keep saying, Jesus, what do you mean, parables? Like, what are you talking about? That's the obtuseness of the disciples. But a Canaanite woman, the arch enemy of the Jewish people. And as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, it's like everything you could imagine about a least likely person, she gets it. Or if you read back a little bit earlier, a Roman soldier gets it in chapter 8. And Jesus says, wow, that's one of the greatest examples of faith I have ever seen. He gets it. But the people right in front of him, he keeps saying, this is now the third time in the last just a few short of chapters where he says, you guys have little faith. Like, you're not getting it. And I think that's just helpful. It's helpful for you and I to realize that we're all in different places. Some of you need to be patient with this whole Jesus thing. Some of you not need to imagine that it's just going to happen like that. And then others of you, it might happen just like that. And one of the encouraging things about hearing even today baptism stories is that all of our baptism stories are kind of somewhere in between those two sides. Some people just, it clicks. And like Jesus and the gospel and the good news of the Bible, it just transforms everything overnight. And other people, it's like a process that takes years And you could be sitting in church in the teachings of Jesus for years and years and not be like, yeah, I'm just not getting it. But I'd say be patient. And it's worth it. And keep coming to church. And keep reading. Because hopefully one day you will. And so before we move on to the second observation, the second big idea earlier in the story, I want us to have a couple pastoral comments about if we can kind of take away what Pharisees and Sadducees teaching were, and then bring that to today. What's the bad teaching that you and I should be aware of? And I'm going to give you three kind of bullet points. First, bad teaching is any teaching that makes little of Jesus. If you go to a church and you visit somewhere, and it seems like Jesus is not the center or a big idea or the, what they're singing in their music, and it's not what they're teaching about from the Bible, maybe they don't even use the Bible, then you've probably found yourself in a bad church. I don't want to just be Mr. like, oh, I know this, and they don't. I'm trying to just be helpful here, to protect you from what would be dangerous yeast leaven that spreads through the dough of your life. Do not let a little bad teaching creep in. And there's just various ways churches will do this. Christians will do this. In today's modern world, we like to make much of the pastor or preacher. 
and the celebrity culture surrounded by our American desire to see somebody be great and amazing. And so the attention, even though it might sound good, it's really on the leadership of the church. That's a way to make little of Jesus. Another way that Christians sometimes struggle to do this is taking secondary issues, third issues, issues that are like a lot of Christians aren't sure what they think about that, and then they make that the center thing. Say, for example, all Christians throughout the last 2,000 years have believed that Jesus is going to return one day, that he was here on the earth, remember? Nobody denies that. That's like a fact of history. Jesus was here. The question is, what happened after this whole death and resurrection thing? And the Bible story is that Jesus left the earth, and that that sounds weird, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but that's good news, that Jesus left the earth and that he's going to return to the earth. And even though that sounds strange, and I just want to be honest that if you're new to Christianity, it does sound strange. Like, there was a human being on this earth, and then he left. And he's still alive as a human being, and he's coming back. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Now, Christians will sometimes take that very basic. That's, that's not the controversial part. That's actually the, like, basic part. The controversial part is when and how and in what manner and then these things have been debated like crazy. And there are churches and Christians that will just make too big a deal about some of these tertiary de details that are like, yeah, we're not sure. There's some tough parts of the Bible. We're just going to admit that. And that's a way to make little of Jesus. Because you're getting lost in the weeds and you miss the whole big garden of the gospel. So that's the first thing. Is that these Pharisees and Sadducees, they want to make little of Jesus. They want to get rid of Jesus. And so bad teaching that you should be aware of is any teaching that is trying to make little or get rid of Jesus. Whether they're doing it overtly or they're doing it kind of subconsciously, you should have your ear out for that. Secondly, the main thing I think we can learn from the Sadducees and Pharisees is that you've got a conservative group and a liberal group. And I don't mean that just politically, although I do mean that politically. And what I mean by that is that in the United States of America, too many Americans have... Uh, even Christian Americans have thought that we should divide religion and politics. That's impossible. You literally cannot divide religion and politics. What the Constitution teaches is a division between church and state. Those are two different institutions. Religion and politics is the words used to talk about the ideas. Anytime you make a law in a country, it has religious ideas behind what's good or bad for human beings. That is called religion. What's good or bad for human beings? And religions teach what that is and what that isn't. So the mixture of religion and politics is inescapable. Therefore, these Pharisees and Sadducees, if you study their historical context, they did not have like religious views and then political views. They were intertwined. Religion and politics was all one and the same. They wanted a king. They wanted a new country. They wanted new government leadership. They wanted politics to be changed by their religion. And they had different ways they would go about it. As I mentioned, the Pharisees were a little bit more Let's do this religiously. Let's pray a lot. Let's be really holy. Let's really commit to certain, like, the more we do that, then God will bless us, and then we'll get that new renewal of everything that we've been longing for. The Sadducees were like, hey, we just got to make the best of what we got. So here, 
we're not going to really do all that holy stuff. We'll just kind of make some deals with all the Roman government officials. And so we're going to compromise our religion for the sake of the politics. And so they ended up having a lot more luxurious lives, whereas these other people would have had a lot more like self-denying, self-deprecating, like, hey, I'm going to be real religious. So there's your two camps. And in the same way that the Pharisees and Sadducees were on two different spectrums, so do Christians today. They will fall to the temptation to be one way or the other way both in their religion and in their politics. Hyper-conservative or hyper-liberal or somewhere on the other side. And here's the biggest problem with this. If I had to guess, every single one of you in this room probably thinks that you're balanced and everybody else around you is either too far to that side or too far to this side. This is why Jesus says, beware, pay attention. You need to really examine this a little bit. You need to look in, and you need to find accountability. You need somebody from outside yourself to give you some honest feedback. Because think about it. Every area you could imagine, in whether it be religious area or political area, it's easy for us to find somebody a little bit further to the right or a little bit further to the left and think, well, I'm not as bad as they are, so I'm somewhere in the middle. That's what everybody thinks about themselves, which means you're self-deceived, maybe, Or maybe you are right in the middle. Maybe you have a healthy, balanced perspective and you're understanding both sides of it. But a lot of us, we're not. And therefore, we need to realize our weakness, our human frailty, means we're limited in our perception and we need a community of people. We need honest conversations and we need to realize that a lot of us can be over to the left. And what we mean by left is just real loose, real liberal in our ways of thinking about Christianity or, um, you know, we used this illustration a couple weeks ago, like, let's just take alcohol, for example. Some people be like, oh, just drink alcohol whenever you want, get drunk, it's okay, Jesus will forgive that. That would be a bad example of, like, that's too far. Or other people be like, don't ever drink alcohol ever. If you do, you're sinning and going to hell. See, somewhere in the middle there is where the Bible actually teaches about alcohol. And we could go down dozens and dozens of examples of things like that. And so you want to be thinking through how to do this in community and be willing to admit that maybe you need greater balance in your own life. Third and finally, in terms of bad teaching, is that the gospel writer of Luke explicitly says that beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And I think this is helpful because hypocrisy, as we've mentioned in the past, it is not a religious word. It is not even a word about your character and what kind of person you are. It is a word used to describe play, acting, dramas, theater, movies. The people that are in these professions of doing the arts They dress up in a costume, they put on a character, and they pretend that they're somebody that they're not. That's the word hypocrite. Jesus, in human history, was the one that changed that word to now be about your moral character and say, are you really the person on the outside that you are on the inside? And the Pharisees, in particular, were very much known for being people that dressed up a certain way and looked a certain way in terms to make everyone think that they're holy, But inside, it was obvious the more you spent around them that their hearts were evil and wicked, which is why Jesus uses 
kind of harsh language in our text. You're an evil and adulterous generation for seeking a sign. It's not because they really wanted to know who Jesus was, and then they're like, please help us know who Jesus is. We want to get you and understand you, so will you give us a sign to help us? That's not what's going on. These are people that are acting on the outside. Oh, would you show us a sign from heaven? Look at verse 1. It says that they were trying to test Jesus. The last time we saw that word test was when Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. They had evil intentions and motives, and the author makes that plain for us. And so the question for you and for me is, does the teaching that you're receiving only focus on external things, or does it drive into your heart? The saddest part of this job that I do is when I discover that people that have been sitting in these seats or seats like it in another church have been acting. They're playing a church game, going through church motions, acting like everything's good, never honestly telling people how they're really doing, and then it leads to suicide. Or then it leads to an adulterous affair because the issues in their marriage were never talked about. Oh, how's things going in your home? Great. Not really great. But I can't share that with anybody. I'm too proud. And then the fruit of it eventually plays itself out over time. It's the saddest reality of this job is to have people look you in the face week in and week out and give you the impression that things are good when they're really broken. That's bad teaching. If we never push you into the heart and say, this is what really matters. Read chapter 15 again if you need to. Jesus makes it really clear in that chapter we talked about a few weeks ago. that He does not care about your external cleanliness. He cares about what's really in your heart What defiles a person is not what comes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth. And so bad teaching will just focus on external things. Let's go to the first story. That's our first big idea, which was beware of bad teaching. Secondly, behold the sign of Jonah. Let's just walk through this passage again to refresh our memories. It says, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came, in verse 1, to test him. And as we just mentioned, we know who they are. We know that they don't normally alliance, but put themselves together in an alliance. And now they're combining their forces to test Jesus. And so they're demanding, they're saying, show us a sign from heaven. Even though he's been showing them sign after sign after sign, it's not like they need another sign or miracle. Jesus just did one a few minutes ago. Read the last story. They're trying to get Jesus to say or do something that will put him in a trap Another way to translate this word is catch him. They're trying to catch him in something. They want him done. They want him out. And so Jesus answers them and says, if it's evening, you'll say, look, the sky is doing well. It looks like it's going to be a nice night. It's red. It's basically the sun's going down and it's not looking all gloomy like there's a big thunderstorm. It's a beautiful sunset. It's going to be a nice day today. Then the morning, you wake up and you look and you say, oh, It's quite gloomy out. That's another way to translate that word threatening there in verse 3. It looks like it's going to be a storm today. And he uses this as an illustration to say, you guys know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. 
but you can't interpret the sign, signs of the times. In other words, it's going over their head. They're not getting it either, just like the disciples, and that's why he then calls them out. Evil and adulterous generation. You're seeking for a sign. This phrase, evil and adulterous, appears in the Old Testament, so there's some background here that Jesus is using, I think, to allude to and echo back to. The idea that you're not, he's not saying like you guys are a bunch of unfaithful husbands or spouses. He's saying adulterous in a spiritual sense. These are Jewish people, and they were known as the bride married to God. That was the way that the Old Testament talked. God was the groom, he was the husband, and his people, the Jewish people, were the bride, and they were married together. And so anytime they ran away from God, and they decided to live their life however they wanted, and pursue their own pleasure, the Bible called them adulterers. You're running away from your husband. You're being a bride that's running away. And Jesus then says, that's what you're doing because you're running away from me. I am the same God of the Old Testament. And so now you are an evil and adulterous generation because you are running away from me. The signs of the times are the signs of Jesus. He's saying, you should see right here, I am the sign. I am the sign from heaven. You're demanding a sign. Hey, right here. Look no further. You want a sign? Here's the sign. It's me. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm saying. I am fulfilling all of the promises God made in the Old Testament. I'm here, but you don't want me. So you're running away. God is bringing exactly what you asked for, and here I am, and you don't want me. That's why he is talking so sharply with them, and that's why he says what he does about the whole interpreting the skies, and you're not getting the times. If that's not clear, let me try and just put this real simply in an illustration. I want you just to think about you sleeping one night, and I'm sure we've maybe all had this experience where something wakes you up, and then you realize, whoa, I'm in the middle of the night, and you kind of look over, and you want to look at your clock or your phone or something, and you want to say, like, what time is it? Is it time to wake up, or is it time to go to bed? In other words, has the sun come up? I just kind of woke up all of a sudden. And so you look over at the clock, and you realize, oh, it's two in the morning. Oh, it's way too early to wake up, unless you're one of those people that wake up at two in the morning. God bless you. (laughs) But then you go back to bed, But you had to look at the clock. You had to read the time, the times. The sign of the times was the clock. And you're kind of looking at the clock, and you're saying, oh, it's it's not time yet. To wake up, it's time to go to sleep. So you go back to sleep. You guys got that? Okay. Scenario number two. You're sleeping, and you sleep in. And you're awakened by the sunlight. Like the sun is piercing through the window and it's glaring into your face. And if you get up and you look over to your spouse or a a child or somebody and you simply say, has the sun arisen now? It's one of those things like, what? It's staring you in the face. It's why you woke up in the first place. That's what Jesus is saying. You're not getting it even though it is glaring in your face. Nobody would wake up by the sun and the first thing they say, oh wait, is it time to wake up? Has the sun arisen yet? They would just be like, oh, I overslept. The sun's all up in my face. 
Oh, it's obviously time to wake up. Jesus is telling this group of people, the sun has risen. It's not time to sleep. It's time to be awake. The time has come. Get up, follow me, this is it. If you don't get it, then you're going to miss out. And if you miss out, then you're an evil and adulterous generation that you're just running away from God instead of running to him. So therefore, the only sign you are going to get is the sign of Jonah. And if any of you were paying attention, as I encourage you to do every week, when we do these scripture readings, we had Alec read for us Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus had a very similar encounter, and he talked about the sign of Jonah. And in there, it explains what the sign of Jonah is. And you can go back and read it again, but in Matthew 12, Jesus says, For Jonah was three nights in the belly of a great big fish. And three days, and then he was spit out. In the same way that Jonah would be three days and three nights in that fish, I will be three days and three nights, not in the belly of a fish, but in the belly of the earth. I'm going to be buried, and then after three days, I'm going to come alive again. The sign of Jonah is many things in some sense, but its most pointed thing is death and resurrection. That is the sign of Jonah. And Jesus is using the story of Jonah. If you're not familiar with Jonah, it's a very fascinating book. It's four short chapters. Check it out in the table of contents. Read it later today. It'll hopefully make sense. A guy is running away from God. He gets swallowed by a fish. He lives in the fish for three days, and then he gets spit out onto the beach. And then he goes and does what God originally commanded him to do. There's more to the story. It's fantastic. But that's the sign of Jonah. Death and resurrection. So then Jesus says to them, Look, you're demanding a sign. The only sign given to you is going to be the sign of Jonah. Death and resurrection. In other words, Jesus is the only sign from heaven that you need. You can almost hear Jesus saying, what else do you really need to follow me? Abandon all other political aspirations, all other religious affiliations, Seek and find. Repent and believe. I am it. Find your all in me. I have a human body. I am God in the flesh. And I'm going to die for the sins of the world. And I'm going to conquer death and sin by rising again from the dead. I am the sign. And if that's not enough, then there will not be another sign that's good enough for you. Jesus is not against giving people reasons to believe and signs to put your faith in him. In fact, he, after they demand a sign, he says, I'm giving you a sign. It's the sign of death and resurrection. The question is, are you going to embrace it? Or do you want a conquering military hero that's going to overthrow the Roman government and use force and power and swords? I'm going to use weakness and death and hanging on a cross. That's the sign that God has come, that everything's being turned over. Can you read it? Can you make sense of the world because of it? Are you waking up and thinking, I don't know, is it time to wake up or not? Yeah, it's time to wake up. Jesus has come. The dawn has arisen. It's time for all of us to realize that we are living in the time of the sunrise. 
And it is shining brilliantly like the noonday. And one day, Jesus is going to return. So, are you beholding the glory of the death and resurrection of Jesus? Or do you still demand for more signs? More evidences? What more do you really need for God to prove his love to you? His generosity to you? His commitment to this world? Is there any greater love generosity, and commitment to care for the humans in this world than the very God who made us to become a human? How about his patience, his willingness to suffer and sacrifice? How about his faithfulness to obey and follow all of the commandments of the Father and do everything that he asked him to do, even to the point of death, even if that death was death on a cross when all of his friends abandon him, when one of them betrays him, Behold the death of Jesus, his love and commitment to humanity. Our lives should be wrapped up in this story. Some people struggle with the death and resurrection of Jesus because they're saying to themselves, I still need to see it. Like, I'd believe in Jesus if he was here right in front of my face, but you say he rose again from the dead and he's still alive, but I can't see him. Doesn't that sound just like the Pharisees and Sadducees? Jesus is standing right in front of their face and they're not seeing it. Don't think that if he were to be right in front of you right this minute, that that would be the only thing you really need. Because what if in some sense Jesus already was? Right here. Right now. Physically speaking, I don't mean Jesus is right here right now and you're just not seeing him because he's invisible or you don't have special eyes to see. The Bible teaches that this gathering of people who have received the love of Jesus have been transformed from their heart inside out, that they are the body of Jesus right here. In fact, when you look around in this room, you're looking at Christ in that sense. We are not the body of Jesus in the fact that Jesus needs a physical body. He has that physical body. But he left the earth in order for him to be in the throne room of the heavenlies and orchestrate all of his plans to spread the good news through human beings and through churches, or as churches are sometimes called, the body of Christ. Maybe... Would it be helpful to just hear, like if only we could have somebody share how the resurrection of Jesus has totally made sense of their life, totally flipped their world around, then maybe would that help you see like flesh and bones right in front of you, somebody comes up and says, the gospel of Jesus is real, I banked my life on it, and everything is different because of it. Now that would help. That's what we're going to do. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the gospel of Jesus. That Christ has come, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, that Christ is gloriously enthroned and conquered. We thank you for this good news and its life-transforming power. 
that it is not just good news for the world in a cosmic sense, even though it is, it is good news for each and every one of us individually. I pray that each of us will believe it, behold it, and watch out for anything that would take or snatch or steal away our focus on Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.